As you know, obviously it is Christmas time and I'm certain that you are in full swing of your Christmas celebrations. Uh, Some of you might uh, elevate your Christmas joy or you might uh, focus in your devotions through the season of Christmas by reflecting on the four gifts of Christmas, which are the gifts of hope and love and joy and peace. And you might focus in on these four gifts over the four weeks leading up to Christmas as you go through the Advent season. And each week you would meditate on and think about and praise God for and read in the scriptures regarding hope and love and joy and peace. And most often in that order. Well, if that is your practice, I hope that you'll forgive me today for getting a bit out of sequence and dealing with the first of those Christmas gifts, hope, on what is the final Sunday of Advent Sunday, which is today. Today we're going to talk about the hope of Christmas. And specifically, we're going to talk about the hope of Christmas in the Annunciation. The Annunciation. Now, let me take just a minute, in fact, before we get into this passage and tell you what the next three services are going to look like here at Brookstone over the next eight days. Uh, Over the next week, we are going to have the opportunity to gather three times. And so today is the first of those three, and uh, we're going to talk about the Annunciation. Uh, We'll gather again on Christmas Eve. And so I'm going to invite you to join us at 9 p.m. this coming Christmas Eve where we're going to be talking about the arrival of Jesus. And we're going to talk about the reason that Christ came and we're going to celebrate communion together. And from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock here in Weaverville, if you want to go to an earlier uh, Christmas Eve service, you can go to the Merriman Avenue campus. They're going to meet from 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. The message will be the same on both campuses, and we'll celebrate communion on both campuses. Caleb Birchfield, pastor, uh, campus pastor there, will lead that service. I'll lead this service. But on both of those, we're going to be talking about the arrival. So today is the Annunciation. Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about the arrival of Jesus. Okay, Luke 2, the Nativity. And then we'll come back next Sunday, which is the day after Christmas. And some people have been asking, by the way, are we having regular service scheduled the day after Christmas? And the answer is yes, we are. Uh, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock here in Weaverville. And so regular service. If, if you've got family in for Christmas, I hope you'll bring them with you next Sunday. and We'll, we'll uh, love on them as well. But next Sunday we're going to talk about the announcement. Not the announcement that you might be thinking of, of the angels who came to the shepherds, but the announcing of the shepherds as they went out and told everyone what they had seen and heard, all right? So we're going to talk about the Annunciation today, we're going to talk about the arrival on Christmas Eve, and then we'll talk about our privilege and our responsibility to go announcing that news um, as we gather next Sunday. I hope you're going to be present for all three of those services. Today, we're in Luke chapter number one, where we're going to be talking about the Annunciation. Now, I should tell you that the word Annunciation is not in the text in Luke 1. You're not going to see it. In fact, you won't find it anywhere in the Bible. The word Annunciation simply means the announcement. And so what you have in Luke chapter number 1 is a profoundly important, life-changing, world-changing, earth-shaking announcement uh, that is made in this passage. Before we read the verses, I do want to take just a minute, though, and answer a couple of questions that oftentimes come up 
uh, out of Luke chapter number one and maybe just take a minute to orient you to exactly what's happening and, and when and why it's happening in Luke chapter number one. Maybe you'll jot some of these things down. Let's begin by looking in verse 26 where the Bible says, and in the sixth month. Now sometimes people are confused about what the sixth month is. And so they wonder, is this a time stamp? Are we getting, do we have some insight into the season in which Christ was conceived and therefore we would know the season, uh, kind of the month in which he was born? Uh, well, no, this is not about the sixth month of the year. If you know Luke chapter 1, you'll remember that in the beginning of the chapter, you have the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the conception of their son who would become John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be a distant cousin of Jesus, and he would be born six months before Jesus, and he would be the forerunner. Remember, John was the prophet who came before Jesus preparing the way, preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, make straight the, the uh, paths or the way of the Lord. So in the sixth month that his mother Elizabeth is carrying him, as she's beginning her third trimester, it's within 90 days of John the Baptist being born just ahead of Jesus, now this text happens in Luke chapter number 1 where, where Mary is going to conceive the Christ child. That's what the sixth month refers to. In fact, if you want to note it in your verse or in your chapter, you'll see it in verse number 36 where the angel confirms this. Behold, your cousin Elizabeth, she also has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, or the sixth month of her pregnancy. So that's just one thing to note. Now another thing to note is that the Bible tells us in verse 26 that the Annunciation is delivered by Gabriel. Do you see it in verse 26? And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent uh, from God. Now Gabriel is a, is a very important uh, presence in the scriptures. Gabriel is seen in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Gabriel is a mighty angel of God. In fact, I call Gabriel, this is my own sort of designation of him, I call him the preaching angel. And in truth, this is what angels do. The word angel means messenger. Angels are, are messengers, are servants of God. But I call Gabriel the preaching angel because he both announces and he explains you see this when he shows up in Daniel 8, in Daniel 9, in Luke 1, also in Luke 2. He's not named in Luke 2, but on the night that the shepherds get the angel visit to announce the birth of Jesus, pretty convinced that's Gabriel that shows up there as well. But what Gabriel does is he announces something and then he explains how that will happen or how that unfolded. I just like to call him the preaching angel because that's what I get to do as a, as a pastor, as a Bible teacher. I announce it. And then, and then I have the privilege of explaining it. Well, this is, what, this is what Gabriel does. He comes to be this messenger. So get this picture in your mind. We're reading a passage in Scripture that tells us about this mighty messenger of God arriving uh, on the earth to bring this profound news just before the birth of the prophet, the first prophet of the New Testament, the closing prophet, really, of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. Now, by the way, you would think, wouldn't you, that if an angel is coming from heaven, if the mighty angel Gabriel is coming to, uh, from heaven, that he would probably come and speak to a person of great power 
and influence. I mean, I would assume that. He would go to Jerusalem maybe and speak to King Herod. Or maybe he would go to uh, uh, Caesarea and speak to, to the governor, Pontius Pilate. Or, or maybe he would even have gone to Rome and have spoken to Caesar. But the Bible tells us that when Gabriel shows up, this great messenger angel, he shows up and he speaks to, well, look at it, what the Bible says in verse number 27. He comes to a virgin. Now, the word virgin means exactly what you and I know that it means. It is a, a woman who, by her own testimony, Mary says, I have never known a man. She is a virgin, but the word means more than that. It means in her character that she is pure. She's a chaste young lady, and it also speaks to her age. Most commentators believe that when the angel Gabriel came to make the Annunciation to Mary, she was somewhere between the age of 14 and 16 years. Marrying age would have been 12-ish, 12 years or a little older. And so what you have is a young um, woman, preteen likely, or a teen, uh, who now is visited, this young unmarried girl, pure and chaste, but this young girl is visited by Gabriel. Now, the fourth thing I would point out before we read the text is that this young woman, 14 to 16 years old, is engaged to be married. Do you see it in verse number 27? He came to a virgin who was espoused, the King James says. She was espoused or engaged, uh, betrothed, would be another way to say it, to a man named Joseph. In fact, the Bible emphasizes this engagement relationship three different times. Three times in both Matthew and Luke, the Bible says they were not married, they were engaged. Now remember, the marrying age would have been 12, and very often these marriages were arranged marriages by the parents. So you have this young woman who is engaged to Joseph. Now, engagement in this culture was a bit different than an engagement in our culture. I mentioned that marriages were often arranged, but also the engagement was not a, just a planning period or a trial period or a commitment that would last until the true commitment of marriage. The engagement was as much of a commitment as the marriage was. They were, in every sense of the word, fully committed. Their lives were fully connected. The only thing that had not occurred was that their the wedding had not happened, the actual marriage hadn't happened, and of course the relationship had not been consummated. But they were fully committed to one another. This is the reason, by the way, that when Joseph heard about the conception of Jesus, he was thinking of putting her away. It's a word for divorce. When Even though they weren't really married yet, that commitment was just as real in the engagement. Okay, And so she's engaged to this, to this man, Joseph. Now, in an engagement in that culture, they would not get engaged and set a date. Like you wouldn't, if you had been a friend of Mary or Joseph, you would not have gotten a save the date card in the mail because there was no date that was set. The way that you would arrange a marriage is the, the families would come together, an agreement would be made, and then when the bride agreed to the marriage, the groom would go away, back to his father's home across town or across the country, whatever it was. He would go back to his father's home, and he would begin preparing their home. 
building their rooms and preparing the place where they would live together as husband and wife. And the wedding happened whenever the place was ready. They didn't set a date. He wasn't working on a deadline. He was just working to finish. And when it was finished, then he would go with his entourage and his friends and there would be a wedding. This is the reason Jesus told the parable of the, of the, the virgins who were wise and unwise, but they had to all be ready for their wedding day because they didn't know when it was going to happen. He would come back and he would get his bride and take her home and the marriage would happen. If y'all are tracking with me, say amen. You understand? Okay. By the way, as you think about that, think of John chapter 14 where Jesus said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions, many dwelling places, many rooms. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And when I prepare a place, in other words, when the place is finished, I'm going to come and get you. And when I come to get you, be ready because I'm going to take you home to the Father's house and we're going to be married and we will be together forever. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was using the language of a marriage, a marriage relationship because we are the bride of Christ. Well, what the Bible says is that Mary, this young woman, is engaged to Joseph. The final thing I would just point out to you before we read the passage is that the passage or the verse says in verse 26 that the angel Gabriel came to Nazareth. When this mighty messenger of God comes to the earth, he comes to Nazareth. And I mentioned he doesn't come to Rome, he doesn't go to Jerusalem, he comes to Nazareth. And that's significant because Nazareth 2,000 years ago was a tiny little nowhere place. I mean, a backwater village uh, of, of very humble means. I don't mean to say it was a bad place. Nazareth wasn't a bad place. It was just a humble place. In fact, you know this when you read John chapter 1 where Nathaniel meets Jesus. He goes and finds his friend Philip. Remember this, John chapter 1? And he says to Philip, we found the Messiah. And Philip must have been like, wonderful, awesome. Where is he? In Jerusalem? Where's he coming from? Some great city? No, his name's Jesus from Nazareth. If you know that passage, Philip goes, what? Nazareth? Are you telling me the Messiah's coming from Nazareth? Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. That's the way Nazareth was viewed. It was this tiny little backwater village. And I don't want to over, you know, get into this too much, but it's interesting, I think, for you to know that the reason that it was such a small and humble and nowheresville kind of place is because it was out of the way. If you had traveled in the ancient world from the east, I'm sorry, from the west to the east. If you traveled from Europe across the Mediterranean and made your way through uh, Israel and toward Asia to the east, there were really only two ways to make that trip. There was one road called the Via Maris. It's the way of the sea. And that road traveled along the Mediterranean shore. And when it got near the Galilee, it crossed the Mount Carmel mountain range, would dip down into the valley right above the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel and head north. There was another road that came this way, up through the Jordan Valley. This is called the King's Highway. These are the two major trade routes. The King's Highway came this way, up through the Jordan Valley, and it merged with the King's Highway just north of Israel. Well, do you know where, where uh, Nazareth was? Right there, <laughs> right, right here. So both roads go around it. Nobody ever goes to Nazareth. 
So I'm taking time to tell you all that because I want you to understand that when Luke chapter 1 occurs and we have this profound annunciation in the, in the months just before the Elijah of the Old Testament comes, John the Baptist bursting on the scene where he will be the prophet of the Messiah, the angel Gabriel comes, this mighty messenger of God with this profound news to a tiny obscure backwater village and speaks to a 15, 16-year-old girl and tells her that she's going to give birth to the Christ child. And that is the annunciation of Luke chapter 1. It's an amazing thing. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 26. Luke 1, 26 says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled. She was afraid. She was troubled at his saying, and she wondered in her mind, what manner of salutation should this be? What, what could this mean? And the angel said to her, fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob, or the house of Israel forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How is this even possible that I'm going to have a baby? And the angel answered and said unto her, Now remember, Gabriel is the announcer, he's the preaching angel, so he announces to her what's going to happen, and now he explains to her how it's going to happen. Verse 35, the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that Holy One which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your cousin Elizabeth, she also has conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed and the announcement is done. Beautiful, beautiful event that happens. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to know about this, and then we're going to go home and, uh, and start moving toward our Christmas Eve service and our Christmas celebrations. But if you're a note taker, I want you to jot down somewhere in your notes that when you consider this annunciation, Gabriel's announcement, it was a fulfillment of a great hope. And I, I, I truly want you to understand this before you leave today, that when Gabriel shows up in Nazareth and he makes this great announcement to Mary, there, there are some things that you and I might not understand on the surface because we're not Jewish enough. But for the Jewish people, this was the fulfillment of a great hope. 
In fact, I would suggest that it is impossible to overstate the national significance of this announcement to the Jewish people. Because when Gabriel comes to Nazareth and he says to Mary these words that we've just read, he was announcing the fulfillment of the arrival of the one that every Jewish person, including Mary, had longed for throughout the entirety of their national history. All through their generations, in every yeshiva, every Jewish school, in every Jewish home, in every Jewish family, they were taught to hope for the arrival of the one that is being announced in Luke chapter number one. In fact, Moses, when he recorded or wrote the book of Genesis, he told us that their hope for this one who would come actually predated even the birth of the nation. It predated Abraham. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter number three. Where in Genesis chapter three, out of a deep brokenness because of their of their disobedience to God, Adam and Eve have been plunged into a depth of sin and a separation from God that was irreconcilable by any effort that they might make. They could not by any effort cover their own sins. They found themselves completely broken away and hopeless from God. And in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. He gave them hope. Listen to what he said. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan. God said, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There are a couple of things in that verse that you need to understand. One is, God is promising one who would come with great authority. Because when you think of the heel of one crushing, that's what the word bruise means, to crush the head of the serpent or the head of Satan, you're thinking about one who has great authority. That is that the enemy is underneath his feet. He is over him. He's promising that you have hope that one day I'll send one with great authority, but not only authority, great power. One who would have the power to literally crush the enemy. And that singular promise to two people in the Garden of Eden, who have fallen into sin, who will now begin to populate the earth, which will eventually give birth to the nation of Israel in Genesis chapter number 12. And it would become not only the hope of the human family, but through Israel, it would be the hope of Israel that God would send one that would crush the head of the serpent. It was with their hope. It's what they longed for. But if you think about it, I mean, who would have the power, who would have the authority to crush the head of Satan. Well, only God could do that, right? And so what does that look like? Is God going to come and crush the head of Satan? Well, that question was asked and answered, asked by Israel and answered by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter seven and verse number 14, where the, the prophet says, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And you know what Emmanuel means, right? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means, say it, God with us. There's the promise. There's the hope. 
So think about it. All the way back to Genesis, God said, I'm going to send one who is going to crush the head of Satan and who is going to redeem you, and only I can do that. And so here's the way it will happen. A virgin will conceive and will bear a son, and that son will, in fact, be God in the flesh. This became their hope. Every Jewish person longed for Every Jewish father taught his children to look for. Every Jewish mother prayed for the coming of this one who would redeem their people. In fact, this one for which they longed came to be known as the hope of Israel. That's what they called him, the hope of Israel, our hope. Listen to how it's stated in Jeremiah 14 and verse 8. They say, oh, you hope of Israel, our Savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land? Why should you be like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Do you hear the longing in that in Jeremiah's prophecy? This is the nation of Israel crying out, where is the one we've longed for? Why are you like a stranger that we haven't met yet? Why, why are you like a, a traveler who you're just spending another night somewhere else and you haven't come yet? You are our hope. Why aren't you here yet? And they longed and they looked and they prayed and they waited. And by the way, you should know that without this hope, Israel would have been in utter despair. Had they not had this hope, this promise of one who would come, if you could imagine it being this, this table, they, they clung to that hope, that promise that God would send one for them. And if they hadn't had that hope to cling on to, they would have had nothing. I mean, this was born out of their own brokenness and sin. Their, their separation from God was their own fault. They they were the ones who had sinned and rebelled against God. Heaven was silent. God was distant. God was unknowable. They could never be restored to a relationship with him on their own. And their enemies were ruling over them completely. That's true spiritually. I mean, Satan was ruling over them. But literally, their enemies had been ruling over them through the ages. Babylon had ruled over them and they had suffered under the hand of the Persians and they had lived under the servitude of the Greeks and now they're living under the, under the rule of the Romans. And so one empire after another just oppressing and stepping on and Satan holding them down and God so far away and silent and, and they're, they're broken because of their own sin. They are desperate. And do you hear it? It's into that desperation that Gabriel comes and says... Hail Mary, you have found favor with God and you will give birth to the Son of God. And every hope of Israel was tied up into that promise, that announcement. It was the fulfillment of a great hope. And I want to make sure that you understand that when verse 32 and 35 says that this is the Son of God, the one Isaiah promised in seven, chapter 7, verse 14, he is coming in the flesh. When verse 33 says that he is coming to deliver Israel and to be their king forever, he was the fulfillment of their hope. But I want you to hear me this morning. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Amen. Don't miss this. He is the fulfillment of your hope as well. Because all of us, all of us, 
know what it's like to be broken by sin. All of us do. And all of us know the guilt, the heavy burden of guilt for our own wrongdoings. Not what somebody else did, not, not because we were influenced, not because of, of any externals, just because of what we did and who we are. We've all known the heavy burden of shame and guilt. And not only among our own relationships here in this life, but we've known the heavy burden of guilt in our relationship toward God. Feeling like, how could God ever love me? God knows what I've done, and God's seen my failures, and I'm so far from him, and he seems so silent and distant in my life. We all know that. And every person here who has any self-awareness at all and is willing to be honest would admit that I know what it's like to live under the oppression, to live under the rule of Satan. My life is just wrapped up in darkness and doubts and questions and fears. And these are the, this is the traffic of Satan. And so it wasn't just, this announcement wasn't just the fulfillment of hope for Israel. It was the fulfillment of your hope and my hope. Second thing that I want to make sure that you understand, just so that there's no lack of clarity here, it is that, is that Gabriel was crystal clear in telling them that Jesus is the hope of Christmas. You know, if you've ever known somebody, certainly those of us who have children um, have done this. If you've known somebody who's carrying a child, maybe a couple having a baby, and you would say, oh, you're having a baby. Is it a boy or a girl? And what are you going to name him? It's, what, what's the name going to be? And we talk about names, and we don't know. We think about names. And Listen, Gabriel didn't come to Mary and say, hey, Mary, you're going to have a baby. What are you going to name him? <laughs> he said, Mary, you're going to have a baby. Let me tell you what his name's going to be. You shall call his name Jesus. Can I say this to you plainly? Jesus is the reason for the season. Amen. That's not just a cute little thing that we say. That's not a cute Christmas card slogan. He literally is the reason for the season. We don't have hope. We don't have hope because we have holiday gatherings, because we have family get-togethers, because we give and receive gifts. We don't have hope because there's this spirit of Christmas on the land. Listen to me. One name brings us hope, and it's the name of Jesus Christ, and that's it. He said, you shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? Because the word, the name means, it's Yeshua, Yeshua. It means the Savior, the Rescuer, the Redeemer. So, I want you to know today that if you need hope, if you're here saying, I'd like to have some of that hope that Israel had, I'd like to have some of that hope that Mary experienced, listen to me, the hope is available for this one reason, because Christ has come, and Christ has lived the perfect life that we can never live, and Christ has died in our place, and Christ was buried, and Christ has risen, and Christ is our hope this Christmas season. That's it. It's Christ. It's Christ. So when, when, when the angel Gabriel, this mighty messenger, this preaching angel, comes to Mary, this backwater village, to this young teenage girl, and he says, you're going to have a baby, Emmanuel, is coming through you, and call him Jesus. It is the greatest message of hope the world has ever heard. One last thing. That when you think about the hope that Israel found in Jesus and the hope that we find in Jesus... It also causes us to not just look back 2,000 years to the first advent of Christ, but it causes us to look forward 
to the future coming of Christ. His second advent. Write it down. We'll close with this. It is to say very simply that our blessed hope is in Christ's second advent. You know what the word advent means, don't you? It's just the arrival of. When we talk about the advent, it's the arrival In Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, there was the first arrival of Jesus, the first advent of Christ. But I've come to church today to tell you that his first advent was not his only arrival. There is another arrival of Jesus that will occur one day, a second advent that will occur, and that is because Jesus Christ is coming to the earth again. He's coming. And in fact, did you know that as much as Israel hoped for that first advent, and as much as as Gabriel announced to Mary that the first advent brought hope to Israel and hope to the world, do you know that the Bible speaks of the second advent of Jesus in grander terms than the first advent? As much as we celebrate this Christmas season, the fact that he came, the Bible calls his future coming, his second advent, a more glorious Event. Listen to what the Bible says in Titus uh, 2 and 13. It says, we wait for the blessed hope. It's not just the hope. It's the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, not just the advent, but the glorious advent of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. It is that this week we celebrate the annunciation, the arrival of Jesus Christ that brought hope to the world. And when you go home this afternoon, if you look at your Christmas cards, you just thumb through them, I promise you, you're going to find these gifts of the first advent mentioned on your cards. It'll talk about peace, and it'll talk about love, and it'll talk about joy, and it'll talk about, these cards will talk about hope. And I want you to know that those gifts of Christmas are ours because Christ has come. 2,000 years ago, in a backwater village, that had a humble reputation and nobody ever expected anything great from was a young girl who nobody would have ever known had it not been for the fact that God put his favor on her and said, preaching angel, (laughs) Gabriel, I want you to go to Nazareth. Nazareth, sir, maybe I should go to Rome. Go to Nazareth. I want you to go find that girl and I want you to tell her, hope has come or is coming. Jesus will be born. Do you have hope today? Seriously, do you have hope for eternity? Let me ask it another way. If you died today, do you know for certain that you have eternal life? Are you absolutely 100% convinced, no doubt in your mind, that you are going to heaven if you die today? Well, let me just say that if your answer is, well, I don't have that assurance or I don't know for sure, let me invite you to find hope, not in a Christmas season, but in the Savior. Jesus. Jesus came and he died. He loved you. And the reason that he came was to die, to take your sins and mine and to pay the penalty of those sins on the cross. And he died to do just that. And then he was buried and he rose from the dead and he is the Savior. And if you trust in him, plus nothing, minus nothing, not him plus church membership, him plus baptism, him plus being good, no. Jesus plus nothing, minus nothing. I don't get to heaven on anything I do, only on what Jesus did.